Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast highlights the critical work of pathologists and the integral part pathology plays in medicine and healthcare. Welcome back. This is part two of our discussion on PCR and rapid antigen testing. For those of you just joining the podcast, we've been talking with Dr. Michael Harrison, who's been giving us some insights into the role of pathology testing in the COVID epidemic. We've been discussing the role of PCR, and we're about to discuss the role of rapid antigen testing. Now, you may have noticed, I'm sure you have over the last two or three weeks, there's been quite a, a an increasing level of commentary promoting these rapid antigen tests or with the the, the acronym RAT um, for the detection of, of COVID-19. As a college, we've been concerned about the, the level of evidence that's been used to back up some of this commentary. Um, can you tell us what you understand about rapid antigen tests? Are they a solution to a problem that we have or are they a solution looking for a problem here in New Zealand and Australia? The standard PCR test, which is, we call it the gold standard, is a test that we've used throughout the pandemic. And we know that it's very sensitive and it's very, very specific because it detects a segment of the RNA that's specific for that virus. And it may even be specific for that strain of the virus, the variant. With the antigen tests, they're detecting actually the protein that that RNA codes for, or some of that RNA codes for, And as such, it's inherently less sensitive than a a PCR test, which has got that enormous multiplication or amplification factor uh, built into the actual chemical reaction. And and so the, the rapid antigen test, which does detect the viral protein, can actually detect relatively small amounts of that protein, but the actual sensitivity is much less than a PCR assay. And we also do notice, have noted that there are problems with specificity. So we'll occasionally get patients samples positive, even though they don't have the infection. Uh, and so those two issues associated with, and it's just the inherent chemistry of a rapid antigen test, uh, will make them less useful uh, in this circumstance. They, the sensitivity is lower. It can be as low as 50 or 40%. Uh, and so that means that you'll miss half half the, the actual infections. And the specificity uh, will often be in the 90%. But when, when uh, as you know, even in a time of a pandemic, uh, 999 out of 1,000 tests are going to be negative. Uh, you probably only need a very, very, very slightly less than 100% uh, specificity for most of those positive tests in a rat test to be false positives. And I, even though because the simplicity of it, the fact that you can do a test there with the person uh, providing the sample at the time uh, and give them the result right away, it it, it seems very attractive. But if you get the wrong information out of it, I, I don't think the attractiveness is so good. And in fact, I know that the public health people who are involved in contact tracing and identifying, once they've identified a positive case, identifying all the contacts of that case, I really don't know how they could actually manage a uh, detection system that has those sort of attributes that where only half the positives are actually true positives and they miss 
uh, some of the positives as well. And I just don't think uh, there's any appetite for degrading the quality of the testing that we're currently doing for COVID because of the problems that that would cause. That's very true, Michael. And and certainly our contact tracers are busy enough tracing the real um, positive COVID diagnoses without having to chase um, false positives. And we then don't want the false reassurance of a, a false negative test, allowing people to continue on reassured that they um, well thinking they are they are COVID free and yeah. um, continuing to infect. So it, it can affect our community in, in two ways. There seems to be quite significant differences between the performance as claimed by manufacturers and, and, and in the real world. How do we explain those differences? Yeah, look, it is hard to, to do that. I think uh, a, a lot of it relates to the fact that uh, the trials are done in a different circumstance. For example, if you did a trial of a rat test in an area where there was a lot of infection, you'd probably find that, in fact, it performs not that dissimilarly to a PCR test, but it's where you've, you're actually with telling everybody to come in, whether they've got a sniffle or they've even a really a, a very light exposure to come have a test, you're going to expect to find the vast majority of those tests negative. And as we know, our current positivity rate is 0.1%, so it's one in a 1,000. Uh, and I don't think there's any rapid antigen test that will perform reasonably in that in that sort of prevalence. Um, Michael, as, as you know, the, um, the college has recently updated its position on um, rapid antigen testing and, and issued a, a new position statement. I presume that you're up to speed with this. Um, wondering if you could talk about the circumstances where rapid antigen testing may be beneficial. Yes, so look, I am. Um, I think where you've got a closed community and you've identified that COVID is occurring there and you don't have an easy access to the PCR test, then it's better than nothing and it will allow you quickly to identify people who are positive uh, and who can therefore be isolated and it can be useful to support an outbreak investigation but as I say it's not the sort of thing that you'd want to use more widely so it's where you've got a confined outbreak and I think an example of this could well be something like a mining camp or a prison or something like that where there's a whole lot of people who are cohorted together and you want to see it immediately who's likely to be infectious and be able to take them out of contact with other people. We knew from very early on in the, in the pandemic that, that people who had symptoms were much more likely to be positive by the PCR test. And, and some of those patients who didn't have symptoms would have very weak positive PCR assays. And therefore, we'd anticipate that most of those people would be rapid antigen negative, and they are, in fact. Um, so uh, the, the asymptomatic patients are... Uh, um, are more challenging from a point of view of a diagnostic point of view. And, of course, I've mentioned already that some of those people who've had uh, COVID infection will maintain their PCR positivity for sometimes for months following uh, the apparent resolution of their symptoms, and they're probably not infectious. Uh, in, in relation to what do you do with a positive result, every positive PCR result, uh, has subsequent testing done on it. Uh, we would always uh, repeat the PCR assay. We'd do uh, another PCR assay 
looking at different targets. So we we typically use a target screen with, and that's the E gene, and we'd use, say, the N gene to confirm with. We could also use an RDRP gene, uh, and some assays use that as well. But these certainly these days in Australia and New Zealand, uh, every positive that we get by PCR then goes off for sequencing so we can see which strain of, of COVID virus is there. Uh, and so the same thing would have to happen with a positive rapid antigen test. The rapid antigen test would need to be confirmed and probably the only way to confirm that is to collect another sample and submit that for PCR testing. And, and then that really brings us on to quality assurance and quality control. PCR, because they run in batches, they have quality control, control samples with every batch. So you'll have negative and positive controls uh, being tested the whole time. Uh, every plate has got some of those on them. And that's one of the things that you miss out on when you're doing a test-by-test test, rapid antigen test. You've got no way of controlling for those sorts of things. But we also do run, uh, and the QAP program uh, was very quick in setting up a quality assurance program for COVID-19 testing. They do send out lots of samples for people to test to check that their assays are performing well and to compare their assays with other assays. There is a little difference in sensitivity, but it's usually right at the high end of, of the amplification charts and also it's to make sure that there is adequate specificity that's usually not a problem with the PCR assay but the the results of the PCR QAP have been really excellent across Australia. There's quality assurance which sets a diagnostic pathology laboratory apart from any other laboratory it's that um, use of internal controls with known positives and known negatives to test your tests against And it's also that participation in external quality assurance programs. And a plug for the RCPA QAP, they were one of the first organisations in the world to to develop a QA program for COVID-19 testing. And in fact, they were invited or asked by the World Health Organisation to also participate in providing QA for other other jurisdictions and other organisations. That's one of the weaknesses of the rapid antigen test is it's missing out all that that QA framework to ensure that, that the test is giving the right answer for the right patient again and again and again. That's correct, yes. We, we talked earlier before we started recording, Mike, about the logistics of doing a rapid antigen test. Have you sort of experienced one being done and, and, and can you sort of explain what that would look like? Okay, so it's a manual process generally, uh, although they do have some automated readers on these some of these tests. But still, it's the application of uh, the material that you've obtained through a uh, throat and nose swab uh, on onto a, uh, a window of a, or, a, or an application area of the test, and then usually some other solution has to be placed on that, uh, which will allow the antigen if it's present. To actually be uh, to go through through the reaction through the reagent layers, and then you get a, a visible result coming out of that testing mechanism. So it's it's a one at a time thing. It's done manually uh, usually. A lot of the manipulation is manual, and right up to the point of actually applying the material to the the test strip or the test window, 
uh, it's exactly the same as what you'd be doing for the PCR test. And then clearly there's a period of time that you have to wait for the test to generate a result. And, th- and therefore, it's not a scalable thing. If you had a small number of people that you wanted to do and you had an individual who was both collecting and doing the testing, then that person would be there for a long period of time gradually working their way through that, that number of people and samples. And compared to the sort of scalability that we have in central laboratories of the PCR test, where we might be doing 10,000 or 15,000 tests in a day, not 15 tests an hour. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the scalability of the rapid antigen test is much less than that of things like the PCR assay. That's really interesting. Um, Coming to the end of my questions here, Michael, is there anything that you think is important that you want to talk about regards antigen testing or PCR testing or the role of laboratories in COVID-19? I think we've actually identified that there are circumstances where we need a rapid result, but a lot of those circumstances are now actually being reasonably well catered for by point-of-care testing PCR tests. So there are a variety of these and they're being distributed throughout fairly wide geographical areas. For example, uh, probably every regional centre in Queensland has got that capability now, both in the public and the private system. And and, and a good example of where you would want a rapid PCR test uh, would be where somebody comes into an emergency centre with a clinical syndrome that's consistent with COVID-19 and you want to know how to manage that person. Uh, And the result that that you use to manage that person has to be highly sensitive and highly specific, exactly the attributes of the PCR test. So on those people, we would do a a rapid PCR test and then you can say, well, yes, they do have COVID and will have to be managed, isolated, protect the rest of the hospital community or they don't have it and they don't have to be treated that way. That's really important. Uh, and so I think we do have the we have the best of both worlds. We've got a, a, a scalable, highly sensitive and specific test that's done uh, in a centralised facility with an appropriate turnaround time to follow up people. And, and then we've got this rapid uh, PCR assay, which enables you do, to deal with those exceptions. Uh, those rapid tests aren't able to be done at scale. You know, you could do, the most you could do would be four in, four in an hour, for example, and, and that's that's not adequate uh, in many circumstances uh, for the sort of volume of testing that needs to be done. But as you say, they're used in a quite a specific scenario where someone's got symptoms, they're in a they're in a hospital or medical care scenario, and a decision choice needs to be made, which is different from the sort of more screening in, in the community base. So it's a different different um, role there, isn't it? Yes, it is. So Michael, it's been a, an interesting eighteen months to be a pathologist. Um, yeah. have, have you enjoyed it? <laughs> yeah, look, I have. It's been, uh, it's really, I've, I've described it as a as a sprint that turned into a marathon uh, and, uh, and it's been a thing that's had all sorts of twists and turns to it. So there, there has been the science, but there's 
It's been also the management of risk and it's the management of the public in relation to risks associated with infection uh, and how you actually do that. It's how you communicate this information, which is of a, often a highly technical and scientific matter to people throughout pathology practice, let alone to the, to the community itself. And it's been, it's been a very interesting journey. And um, what's your crystal ball like for the, the next few years? I think COVID's going to go the way of flu, but it's a very bad flu. So I think high levels of vaccination are, are the way out of these outbreaks that we're currently still seeing. Uh, and then once we've got high levels of vaccination, then it's very likely, I think, that the virus will keep mutating, as we've observed already, and we will have to be like flu, have an adaption of the, of the vaccine on a regular basis. So I think we'll be having uh, at least annual, but maybe even twice yearly COVID booster shots with a, a new strain, with a new vaccine that, that actually covers the, the most recent strains around. And, and I think that's the way that we'll manage this process. Uh, people will still get COVID infection, uh, but there'll be very little serious disease as a consequence of that. And so that's very analogous to the situation we were previously with flu. And, and I think it's something we're going to find that we'll have to live with. That's right. It will become very much a, a vaccine-controlled illness. And, and we forget how many thousand people a year die of influenza. And we've, we've forgotten about that a little bit as well in, in re- with the, the COVID epidemic. That's right. It was several thousand a year in Australia would die every year from flu, and that's even with reasonable levels of, of, of vaccination. vaccination. And I think we can do better than that. Hey, Michael, it's um, been lovely talking to you. Do you have any um, advice for the, the aspiring medical student or young person looking looking for a career? What would you tell them now in 2021? Yeah. So I think I think there's there's going to be a, a lot of consequences of this, uh, and 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 many of them really relate to you know how we best use our healthcare system to 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 deal with these sorts of issues. So there'll be a lot of organisational change that's going to occur, and there'll be a lot of people involved in that. Uh, and but I think we'll get it, the outcome will be better for sure. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Michael J. For the latest RCPA updates, make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter.